0: You're not the only one who doesn't know that stuff, so don't worry about it. I'll just stand up here awkwardly while it's playing behind me, and I'm trying to fiddle with my mask, getting this thing off. Hey, everybody. Good to see you. Everybody doing well? Good. It's good to be back with you. I was out uh, visiting family and friends uh, back in SoCal last week, Uh, and uh, Graham was... Four or five inches shorter than Jill when we moved out here, and now he's caught up to me. He's like, uh, he's six foot now, and uh, he's got like two inches to go on me. So, you know, a lot's happened in the the last 18, 19 months or so. Um, Hey, well, in his 2005 address at the commencement of Canyon College, David Foster Wallace, the late novelist, began with a little parable. He said there was this old fish out swimming around, and he comes across these two younger fish and says to them, hey boys, good morning, how's the water? And they kind of look at him, puzzled, and he swims on, smiles. The other one says to the other fish, the younger one says, uh, what the heck is water? It's a good question to ask every now and then, what is the water that we are swimming in. What's going on in and around us? As I was out visiting with some friends, uh one of them who I would regularly kind of trade reading lists with had me check out this kind of like uh, mindfulness self-improvement app that she was swearing by. And it kind of summarizes best-selling books. And the idea of it is that you can get you know, a lot more bang for your buck. You can get a lot more of the, the content and the main points of these books in just a fraction of the time. Not a bad idea at all. Um, it's just not really how I read books. Um, I like to get in there and wrestle. I never learned how to skim when I was in college. Um, I was an English major and I always felt like you know, if you, if you don't read every single word, you're cheating, right? So I, I probably need to see my therapist about that, but nonetheless, that's, that's kind of how I roll, right? But the thing that struck me as I was checking out uh, this library, she was showing it to me, was that everything in there was by far weighted toward the self-help section. And I don't really have a strong opinion about that, but I think it says something about where we are. For all the talk of this being a secular age that we are in, I think the religious impulse is just as strong as ever. It's only that we have transposed and kind of broken apart the places where we direct our longings and our loves. Um, That was already kind of a a healthy trend going on pre-COVID. COVID just kind of poured jet fuel on a pretty healthy fire that was going on there. And the places where we carry these longings and these loves, these places where we look for transcendence, has kind of gotten broken apart to where it's now everywhere. Instead of church, you know, it's, it's goat yoga or a soccer match or something. Instead of worship, it's going to a really great concert. Instead of community, it's, it's CrossFit. Instead of teaching, you know, really good TED Talk. Instead of spiritual practices, it's a mindfulness app. And a lot has been written over the years about the, the, the rise of kind of politics taking on a religious tone where orthodoxy is measured in terms of political ideology and purity. And here's the thing, I'm not taking a swipe at any of those things or at the people who kind of have directed their longings in those places, except CrossFit, that's a cult, <laughs> Right? Like, I'm sorry, like, and if you're like, no, I didn't, I saw, that's what a cult leader would say, you know, it's like, <laughs> right, I don't, I don't do that, but the reason we kind of go into these different places is that we are creatures of habits, and when our habits get disrupted, when they get kind of spread apart and broken into different places, we, you know, the longing that we have has to go somewhere, the search has to go somewhere, our hearts are restless, And deep down, we have this kind of impulse toward, you know, the things are, they should be other than how they are. We have this innate longing for transcendence, this desire to be rooted in something bigger than us, something that has the power to save us, something that has the power to transform us. Another thing that's in the water that we just kind of are in is that we are now constantly in the the midst of this void being shaped by all kinds of digital distraction. Every day we wake up and we are being formed and discipled by something. And so I've said the question is not whether you are being shaped, whether you are being spiritually formed. The question is who or what are you being shaped and formed by? Who are you being shaped to become? We are, you know, on the day in and day out, bombarded by digital messaging or by the post-sexual revolution kind of idea that sex is just, you know, play for adults. It doesn't have any sort of meaning or anything like that really behind it. Or we're bombarded by our culture's sort of, you know, beauty and, and body standards. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, but just recently, the Wall Street Journal had this bombshell kind of reporting on Instagram's own internal documents, which are all about how psychologically damaging the app is to, uh, to young people, particularly to teenage girls. If you are a parent of a teenage girl, I, you know, I, just check it out. It's, if you can get around the paywall, it's, it's worth a read. And it's not, you know, if it's not the, the comparison game on social media, then it's the culture of consumption that's always, you know, prompting us to have more, to kind of create that itch and then slide a, a product into the algorithm so that, you know, it's, it's getting colder out. You need your 13th jacket or whatever it is. And the philosopher Jamie Smith calls these cultural liturgies. There's these, these kind of cues that shape us to the practices of the media or of shopping or of politics. And they're they're just the things that are out there. They're the water that we are in. You don't have to try to be shaped by them. They are coming at you from all kinds of different places. They're, the, they're like the default setting that we are in. If you were to just wake up as a person in our culture, you would not have to try to seek these things out to be shaped by them. They would be having their effect on you in all kinds of ways, largely because they operate underneath the level of conscious thought. They operate on the level of shaping Your habits, just a click here, just a swipe there, just a scroll here. And they're not aiming for your mind, they're aiming for your heart. Because what we love, what we long for, is way more powerful than what we think. So if those are the things that are working against us, if that's the water that we are swimming in, how do we practice the way of Jesus so that we can participate in the kind of life that he has on offer? Well, over the last few weeks, we have talked about scripture and community as kind of foundational pieces of our apprenticeship. And so this morning, I want to talk about a third piece, what it means for us to be rooted in practice as a kind of counterformation for all of the unconscious habits that are directing our loves and our longings, all those things that are happening beneath the surface of our awareness. And by that, I mean specifically the spiritual practice that Jesus modeled all throughout his life throughout the Gospels, kind of out there hidden in plain sight, is the fact that Jesus' teaching and Jesus' way of life are things that he expected his followers to put into practice. And so if you've got your Bibles, I want you to uh, open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting at verse 24. Uh, This is from a letter of Paul who was an apprentice of Jesus, and he gives this great metaphor. He writes, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Clearly, Paul was not a millennial. (laughs) This was written a long time ago. (laughs) Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict Thanks be to God, indeed. Paul's metaphor for what following Jesus is like comes from the world of athletics. It's like a runner running a race or like a boxer in the ring. And this kind of, you know, illusion would have uh, connected with his audience because every year in the city of Corinth, uh, every two years in the city of Corinth, the Isthmian Games were played. There were this kind of Olympic-style competition. Tens of thousands of people would have come to the Colosseum to take part and to watch in it. And he uses this idea of an athlete in training all the time. Uh, this is some advice he gives to a young apprentice of his named Timothy. He says... Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labor and strive. He goes on to tell Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. And again in 2 Timothy, he tells him to train so as not to be disqualified for the race. Anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. Over and over again, he gives this metaphor of an athlete in training to describe what apprenticeship to Jesus is like. And this isn't, you know, kind of a one-off thing. He does this in Acts, he does this in Galatians, he does this in Philippians, all over and this is something that got into the early church as well. St. Athanasius kept it going by calling the desert fathers and mothers athletes of God. And so I want you to notice that in this metaphor, discipline plays a central role. The NIV has the section heading, the need for discipline. And, uh, you know, Catherine's favorite translation of Uh, The Bible has verse 25, as all athletes are disciplined in their training. And then in verse 27, I discipline my body like an athlete. All this is to say that for Paul, the way that we come to faith, the way that we, we discipline ourselves to Jesus is Through doing activities, discipline is part of the deal. To be a disciple of Jesus is to live a disciplined life. And what he is talking about here has come over the years to be known as the spiritual disciplines of the church. They were things that were all throughout the early church's way of practice as they sought to live out the life of Jesus wherever they were. It's what some people have come to now call the practices of Jesus. And, and I like that because I think, you know, one of the, the, the primary misconceptions that people have when you use a word like spiritual practices is that they assume that it's like some sort of disembodied thing. If it's spiritual, then that's out there. It's not in here. But for Paul, the body is the way that we come to the spiritual disciplines. It's, it's, you know, the way that we show up to God, the way that we show up to each other is always through the habits and things that we do with our bodies. And this is a key thing because all throughout his writings, all throughout the New Testament, the body is the place where the essential spiritual battles are won and are lost. He describes it over and over again as a battle between the spirit and the flesh. That's what the life of faith is for Paul. And so for Paul, discipleship is something that you do with your body. It's something that you bring all of yourself, all of who you are, As he tells the Romans, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your true and proper worship. Faith is a whole life embodied thing. It is not just a matter of what we do in our heads. It's not just what we think. It's not just what we believe. Faith is something that we put into practice. And the other thing, uh, you know, that I I prefer practice is, um, at, you know, as we were kind of going through the visioning process, uh, you know, to be candid, this is one of those words that you know kind of had a little bit of uh, is mixed reception. Not so much the idea, but the word itself, like rooted in practice. What does that mean? It's like, don't worry, I'm gonna explain it one day. Um, but you know, discipline, I think, didn't quite have the right. Connotation of what we're trying to get out. And I think particularly in a post-Christian culture where people have all kinds of thoughts about what discipline is uh, in this kind of like anti-authoritarian sort of, you know, don't tell me what to do sort of thing. Discipline didn't quite seem like the right word. I mean, if we, I were to say as a church, we are rooted in discipline. I, <laughs> like, what would you think about that? Like, I, mean, I don't know what you think about about that. Like, like, we wanted to punish people or something. At the very least, it might attract a very different kind of people to the church, uh, like way more, you know, spandex and leather or whatever. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> but another reason that I prefer the the word practice is, uh, you know, practices of Jesus, is that these are things that we see rooted in the life of Jesus. They're things that Jesus did. They're the ways that he stayed at home with the Father. So I've come to prefer this term, practices of Jesus, but I'm talking about spiritual disciplines. It's all the kind of the same thing. All right, so what is exactly a practice of Jesus? Well, if you've been around for a while, uh, especially pre-pandemic, this isn't anything new for you, but I love Dallas Willard's definition. He writes that they are activities of mind and body purposely undertaken to bring our personality and our total being into effective cooperation with the divine order. They enable us more and more to live in a power that is, strictly speaking, beyond us, deriving from the spiritual realm itself. In other words, they are a way of partnering with the Spirit over time that opens us up to God's work of renewal in our lives. And if we are going to be part of the renewal of all things, that renewal has to come from renewed persons, right? But Don't get me wrong, when I say partnership, uh, that does not in any way suggest that it's like a 50-50 kind of deal. Uh, You are not in charge of your spiritual growth, but you do have to show up to it. Like, there are things that we do. Uh, Dallas Willard's famous line is that grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. There is a part that we do, that we take responsibility for in our own spiritual growth. But it's the Spirit who brings about the fruit of transformation. God is the one who is doing all the heavy lifting in us. And the reason that we take on these practices is is precisely to put a check on all of the habits that are swirling around in the water of our environment that sort of unconsciously shape us all the time into being a particular kind of person. And we put on instead the practices of Jesus himself. Now, there's not like any sort of official list out there about what the spiritual disciplines are because, you know, if you look throughout the life of Jesus and you see yourself doing things that Jesus regularly did, you are on pretty good ground. Uh, Anything that you see Jesus doing repeatedly throughout the Gospels, it's a good idea to put that into practice. But there are things like, you know, silence and solitude, Scripture, uh, meditation, anything to do with the Bible itself, uh, meditating on it, memorizing Scripture. Sabbath. We spent some time last year talking about the need to take a 24-hour, you know, kind of time each week to stop and rest and delight in God and to worship. Uh, it's it's prayer. It's it's community. It's gathering together regularly with other people who are following Jesus, like Mike talked about last week. It's it's giving generously. It's things like. Fasting, taking a time to withdraw from the appetites of the body as a way of kind of training your body not to rely on those appetites. It's extending and receiving hospitality, worship like what we're doing right now. The ways that we get out into the world and serve others through works of justice and mercy, or sharing the gospel with others. It's you know things like living simply, uh, not having everything that we could possibly want. It's confession and forgiveness, but it's also things like celebration and gratitude at all of the amazing things that God has done, all the signs of God's faithfulness to us throughout the years, right? So that's what they are. When we talk about spiritual practices, that's what we're talking about. When we talk about rooting ourselves in practice, we're talking about doing those things that Jesus himself did. But before we kind of get into spiritual practices in particular, I want to kind of, you know, walk back a little bit and take a a kind of a 30,000 view and just ask the question, like, why, you know, do we practice anything in general? Like, any sort of thing that we do, why do we practice? And we do it, I think, you know, to produce an ability in us that we don't currently have. Uh, Ultimately, we do it to shape us into being a certain kind of person. We practice anything that we do in life to become a kind of people who, over time, are able to do things that we can't presently do. It's an investment in the future. That's why we practice. Let's see if I can give you an analogy. Um, When I was in eighth grade, uh, this, so put yourself back in the early 90s for a second there, Fresh pins, all that stuff. Uh, NBA was king. Like, I grew up in the height of Showtime Lakers. And look at those shorts. Uh, Magic, Kareem, James Worthy, Byron Scott, A.C. Green, uh, Kurt Rambis with his mullet and those crazy goggles that he would wear. Like, that was my jam. Now, ba- baseball was always my first love, but in the 1990s, If you were, you know, in Central California, basketball was where it was at. Uh, I know the Hawks, you know, Dominique Wilkins, right around that time, like it was a good time to be, you know, in love with basketball. I wore out this VHS tape of Michael Jordan's playground, Um, you know, and you remember that Gatorade commercial, like, like Mike, if I could be like Mike, remember that one? I mean, the NBA was everywhere. I still sing that song, uh, only now I'm, you know, it's about Mike St. Dennis for me. If I could be like that guy, then that would be pretty cool. So like, with all that stuff going around, like, I wanted nothing more than to be able to dunk. Like, In my eighth grade logic, I just knew that if I could dunk a basketball, then all of my problems would go away. Like, Girls would want to be with me. Guys would want to be me if I could throw it down out on the playground. So what do you think would happen if I you know, went out there and I tried really hard to dunk, but I never trained myself to do it? What would happen? Nothing would happen, right? Turns out you can't be like Mike by watching a video. It might inspire you, but it's not actually going to lift your feet off the ground. So I went into training. I bought these shoes. Anyone remember these things? Yeah, I would go around with these shoes and ankle weights on, right? Because I was super cool in the <laughs> and and I, you know, I was like five ten and uh, one hundred thirty pounds, soaking wet when I was in eighth grade. So I drank protein shakes all the time. And I had this neighbor across the street who had a home gym, and so I would work out three times a week. And then when ninth grade came around, what do you think happened? I still could not dunk. (laughs) But I grew a few inches. I stuck with it. By my senior year of high school, no problem. Dunk all the time. I wanted the life I needed to take on the lifestyle. See if I can give you a better example of that. There's a story about Michael Phelps from the 2008 Olympics. And in the 2008 Olympics, he had already won uh, nine gold medals up to uh, the point in his, in his career. Um, But on the morning that he was getting ready to swim for his best event, the 200 meter butterfly, you know, he got up, did his morning routine, kind of went through things as he would normally do. And as he got to the pool and, you know, done his stretching, had done his his pregame routine, he had, you know, squeezed himself into his suit, which apparently took like 20 minutes each time. And he got himself ready, and he got out there, put on his headphones, was ready to go. And then when he jumped into the water, he noticed immediately that something was wrong. His goggles started to fog up. Best race, you know, by far the favorite to win, but by the time the second term came around, he was completely blind. He could not see where he was going. So instead of trying harder, And just kind of moving frantically about a pace, he relaxed into his training. You see, he had actually trained for this moment. His coach, Bob Bowman, had him once swim laps in the University of Michigan pool at night with the lights out so that he would know what to do if something like this happened. And so instead of panicking and swimming really hard, he switched in his head to counting his strokes. He hit the turn, came back, counted his strokes to the end, the result, Gold gold medal number 10, and a new world record. He had become, over the time of these disciplined habits, he had become the kind of person for whom winning a race was just part of the routine. It was the natural extension of his ability. Maybe you can see where I'm going with this. A practice is a way of being intentionally shaped into a particular kind of person so that what comes out of us is akin to our second nature. We don't have to think about it, we just do. Spiritual practices are to the way of Jesus what scales are to musicians, what training is to an athlete, what a sketchbook is to an artist, They are activities that open us up, only they don't open us up to our own ability. They are ways that we are opened up to the power of the Holy Spirit to shape us and allowing the deep work of transformation to get in us so that our character and our actions begin to look more and more like Jesus instead of whatever habits or sorts of things that are unconsciously operating on us all the time. So every time you open up your Bible, every time you, you fast, every time you come to pray or, or come to your community group, every time you intentionally pursue silence and solitude, what you are doing is saying, wow, you know, life is, is crazy, especially with my iPhone, especially in, you know, this, this city that I live in. And with all these things that are, that are coming at me, all my desires out of whack. And, but here in this moment, I, I, am, I am here. And you're here, and and we're together, And, and you open yourself up to the life of the Spirit, to have access to this life that is beyond you. And that is why all the disciplines, they are just a means to an end, but the end is Jesus. The end is looking like Jesus. And so it's, it's not like, you know, you pursue these things to earn favor with God. It's not like you pursue them to uh, put on a checklist of like, oh, look, I read my Bible six times. Let me post it on Instagram or whatever. I'm fasting. Let me post it on. I don't know. The point is, no, God, here I am. Have your way with me. Work in and through my life. The end is transformation. Dallas Willard again puts it like this, we can become like Christ by doing one thing, by following him in the overall style of his life that he chose for himself, namely by practicing the types of activities he engaged in, by arranging our whole lives around the activities he himself practiced in order to remain constantly at home in the fellowship of the Father. Such things as solitude and study and silence and prayer, simple and sacrificial living, Meditation upon God's word and God's ways, and service to others. You know, if you look at Jesus' life, like sometimes he would teach in these long stretches, like the Sermon on the Mount, and doubtless, you know, he was with his disciples, and there were times that he would talk to them for days on end. These conversations that you know would, would go on and on, and we just we, we don't have them written down. We know that Jesus quoted scripture all the time, which meant that he meditated upon, he feasted upon scripture. He knew it inside and out. It was the reality that he lived by. It was the story of God's grace that he lived by. But he didn't call his disciples to a classroom. He called them to follow him. He called them to do the things that he did. And then he taught them what the life of the kingdom was like on the way. If you've ever met people who look like Jesus, whose presence just like makes you uh, love Jesus more and more. I mean, I have more than a hunch it's because they have arranged their lives around doing the kinds of things that Jesus did. Oh, sorry, I'm getting a little choked up because I'm thinking about... Um, I, got, I got to spend some time with this couple last week. Sorry, this isn't like me. <laughs> All right, here we go. Uh, and for, for, for years, one of them, they have they, led this community group for people who have severe mental illness, um, some of these illnesses run pretty deep Um, he's he's bailed these men out of jail he has taken them to the hospital he's been there with them when they've you know had to go to court and stuff like that Um, been with them through thick and thin and this group started out when the pastor of the church that he was attending asked this this man to tell these other men who were suffering from schizophrenia that they needed to leave the church because they're you know they were disrupting they were scaring people and all that but my friend, he just he couldn't do that, and so he he started a group. And these men that were asked to leave, they brought friends to the group, and he's been meeting with them every week for 20 years. Uh, he buys them dinner every week at Coco's Cafe. And you know the thing about uh, Larry, his name's Larry, is that he didn't just wake up and become a saint. He didn't, like, just set his alarm clock and say, you know, I'm, uh, I'm going to, like, be all Jesus-y and awesome today. Like, that's, that's what I'm going to do. Instead, every day for decades, he's been shaped by these practices, by meditating on Scripture, by, by writing notes of gratitude, by, by studying God's Word, by, by preparing these lessons for this Bible study with these men who desperately want to know Jesus. And he shaped every morning in prayer with his wife, um, And every week, by opening up his home and his wallet, he's always, always giving more and more of himself away. And all these practices, over a lifetime, have shaped him into the kind of person that when you're around him, you just can't help but feel joy. We practice because we learn the way of Jesus by doing. We take on the practices of Jesus Because it gives us an opportunity to replace all of the unintentional ways that we are being shaped by things every moment of the day. All the ways that our loves and our longings get pulled out of whack and pulled out of shape. And we we replace them with the things that over time shape our character and our minds and our hearts and our habits differently. That shape us to look more and more like Jesus. So that one day our character looks more and more like Jesus. Like, don't, don't, don't get me wrong in this. Like, when Jesus says, practice these things, put them into practice, he thinks that you can really do it. He thinks it is really possible for you to have the relationship with the Father that he has. And the thing about these practices is that the more that you do them, the more that you'll, you'll want to do them. The more that you're opened up to the life of the Spirit, the more that you will want to be opened up to the life of the Spirit. And i got to tell you, I came about this honestly. Um, I hit a wall in my life in ministry about six years ago. I was burned out. I was stalled out in ministry. And um, it took this really hard season for me to realize that I needed to train my soul differently. All the paces and pressures of of life and, and raising a family, like those things weren't going to change. And so I needed a way of being with Jesus that would bring about change in me. And it wasn't about believing in Jesus more than I did. It wasn't about you know uh, correcting some pattern of thought that I had. It was about arranging my, my schedule to be more like Jesus, to, to do more of the things that Jesus did. So I began to look at his overall lifestyle, I began to look at the, the habits that he practiced. I started reading a heck of a lot of Dallas Willard. And, and here's the thing. You can knock yourself out all the time trying all of the disciplines and be more tired and be worse off than you were when you started. But I found in these practices a way of training my mind and my body to participate in what the Spirit was doing already to turn over the soil of my heart and to make me into a different kind of person. I can tell you, it's a game changer for me. And that's what the spiritual disciplines are about. They are joining what we know about Jesus to the patterns and rhythms of Jesus' life. He's inviting us to learn from him so that we can arrange our lives around the things that he did and in the process open ourselves up to the spirit to bring all of our longings, all of ourselves, all of our things to the table and let him have his way with us. And this is not something that happens all at once. It takes time. It takes time to unlearn all of the ways that we are being programmed beneath the surface. It takes time to learn all the ways that we are being shaped by the things that are coming at us. It takes time to realize what water is. Because those things aren't going to stop, which is why training is hard. The grace is that he has already run the race. He's just a little further along. And he's inviting us to come to the place where he himself has already run. And that makes running all worth the while. May it be so with us. And now we come to the table, which is a central practice of our life together as a community. It's at this table where we see the shape of God's story, where in this meal, we remember how he poured himself out and his body was broken on our behalf. And so, friends, as we come to the table, let us pray. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. To give our to Friends, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples together in an upper room, and after he had given thanks, he took the bread, and he broke it, saying, This is my body, broken for you. Take and eat all of you and do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after he took the cup and poured it out, saying, this is my blood shed in the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. Take all of you and drink of it. So it is that whenever we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim his dying until he comes again. And so, friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. We'll be serving communion in one of two ways. There are, um, there's a table in the back with wine and juice. I'm going to invite Mike to come forward and we'll have two lines formed in the center aisle to come and you can take wine and juice here. But friends, as we come, let us prepare our hearts and let us take part in this mystery of faith. And as we do, we proclaim what a mystery it is. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Come, friends, the table is set and all is ready.